My name is Mary Baker, and I'll be reading from Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 1, 21 through 33. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, um, the other day, Hannah and I were taking a walk, and we were reflecting upon our, our first jobs that we ever had. I don't know if you can remember the first job that you ever had. And I was actually a bit conflicted. Like, I'm not that old, but I'm like, what was the job? Was it this or that? And I couldn't remember. And then actually, as I was preparing for this message, I came across uh, some documentation that reminded me of actually which of the jobs I was thinking was my first job. And it was actually between the summers between my junior and senior year of, of high school. And actually, for a first job, it was kind of interesting. Don't know if it was kind of fully legal. I'm assuming it was. My parents let me do it. So... But it, so I'm 17, I just turned 17, uh, just at the start of that summer, and uh, a friend of ours owned an electrical company, and, and so he hired me on to do electrical work, or <laughs> to help with electrical work, and the very first job that we ever had was, was installing some lighting at a warehouse out in Carmel Mountain, and uh, I was pretty excited about it, you know, I'm like, wow, this is, this is a real, you know, real job, and like, this is, you know, a serious thing, I'm going to be making some some money, and then the reality of the job kind of hit me. Um, I discovered that my boss liked starting work at 6 a.m. and getting off by, you know, three every day. So that meant that, because it was in Carmel Mountain, I was living in Escondido at the time, you know, there's a little bit of a drive, about 30 minutes to get there or so. So I'm I'm up, you know, in the four o'clock hour, the five o'clock hour, I'm having to pack my own lunch, you know, because my my mother, uh, I love her and she took care of us, but but at that point she's like, you're on your own, you're packing your your own lunch. And, uh, and so I did the job for a while, and I really, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed the idea of making the money, but getting up, going to work, and then discovering that my job as a 17-year-old, which makes a lot of sense when you're working for a company that, you know, does electrical work, was to dig ditches. And, uh, and so that was my first job for four months that summer. That's uh, what I did. I was going to actually show you if digging ditches wasn't the worst part of it, one of the places where we were installing the conduit for the electrical poles that were in the parking lot meant that we dug the ditches. I still don't know this to this day. You know, you could rent a trencher, right? And they could just trench, you know. It's 400 yards of conduit that we had to, to do and to dig. And, uh, and they used the trencher the first time, but it wasn't deep enough to code. Rather than getting a trencher and finishing the work, like, we got these guys over here, let's go ahead and have them dig the next three inches out. Do you know, at that point in the level of dirt, when you're digging a trench, like, it was rock hearts, we're just digging, digging, and we put the conduit in, and then, when you get that done, you had to compact it, because it was going to be a, you know, 
a parking lot. And so they like they put the you know the little guys on the tone pole on the compactors. And so for like literally all day, we're just on these compactors doing it. And so that was my first job, and it wasn't that glorious. And and I realized that that wasn't something I wanted to do the rest of my life. Uh, I also learned a lot of things that summer. I learned some new words I didn't know on the construction site. That was. Actually, I played ice hockey, so I probably learned most of those words already. But, but it was one of those things that got me thinking about our scripture this morning, because I don't know what kind of first job you had. Uh, maybe it wasn't that glamorous. Maybe you didn't enjoy it. Um, maybe even today, the job you have is not a job that you fully enjoy. Um, even the people that really enjoy their jobs, I was just, I was thinking about this. Even when you have a job that you enjoy, you can still have frustrations, because maybe the, the boss you're working for at times um, is, is not necessarily competent for it. Sometimes you get irritated because your coworkers or maybe they're a little lazy, um, maybe got the impossible expectations of clients. So even in the best jobs, even in the jobs that we want, they can be difficult. They can be a struggle. And the majority of our lives is spent, spent working. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that when God's word comes and it's addressing the different relationships that Christians experience in the world, he would address the relationship between those who are workers and those who are employers. And he does it, though, by, in our text this morning, talking about the relationships between slaves and their masters. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verses, verse 5, and we're going to look at this text that you heard Mary read earlier. Now, I want to do something here before we actually get into the text, and that is, I got to be clear on a couple of things. Um, This is a text that talks about the relationships between slaves and masters, and there is absolute application to our context today as far as a worker and their employer. But before we can get to that application, we got to be clear on, on what was happening in Paul's day Um, as it pertains to slaves and masters. Because when you and I hear that term slave, when you and I hear the idea of a slave and a master relationship, we immediately think of pre-Civil War America and slavery here in the United States. And what I want us to, what I want to disabuse us of is any notion that when Paul is talking to slaves and masters in the book of Ephesians, that that's what he has in mind. And the reason why I say Paul doesn't have that in mind is because that was something that happened 2,000 years after this text was, was written. And slavery in Paul's day was significantly different than slavery in pre-Civil War America. So we're not going to be able to really understand this passage and apply it even to our situation as workers or employers if we don't first grasp and understand what ultimately God's word has to say to us about slavery in, in Paul's day. So, so when you think about slavery, I don't want you to think about the slavery that you, we picture when we picture slavery in America for a couple of reasons. Okay, first, when we think about slavery in Paul's day, did you know that at the time that Paul wrote this, there was the potential of about 60 million, 50 million people who were identified as slaves in the Roman Empire. 50 million to 60 million people who were identified as slaves in the Roman Empire. In the city of Ephesus, where Paul was writing this letter, there was the potential that the population was one-third a slave population. But now, what did that relationship look like? What was the relationship like between slaves and their masters in Paul's Paul's day? Well, it was vastly different from slavery in America in this sense. In our nation's history, slavery was based on race, okay? 
The slavery that existed in our country was a slavery predominantly based upon the race of individuals. When those who were enslaved in Africa and brought over here to America, when they, they came here, the, sadly in our nation's history, those who were brought over, they were viewed as subhuman. They were viewed as, as something different than the white man. And, so, and so, so slavery in America was based on race. Slavery in Paul's day was not something that in any way, shape, or form was based upon race. If anything, slavery in Paul's day was more akin to what we'd call indentured servitude. Okay? Indentured servitude. It was, it was something that was done, as you see here, it wasn't based on race. It was a way, way to deal with the socioeconomic problems that existed in culture. And so if you were a slave in Paul's day, it was most likely because, not because you were enslaved, that means that you were captured somewhere and then brought and forced to work for someone else like slaves were here in America. It was a way that you, if you had a debt that was owed to someone else, could go and say, I will become your slave. I will become, as you heard in the text, your bond servant so that ultimately I can pay off that debt. They did not have a welfare system in ancient Rome. And so what do you do with people who do not have the means, either because of a poor crop or because of sickness or disease in their family, who were not able to financially take care of themselves or their family? That's where you could sell yourself or a family member to someone else to be their slave. And in doing so, what you were able to do was to eventually, potentially buy your freedom back. But you worked for that person because in Paul's day within the Roman family, when you became a, a slave to someone else, they became your master and you became a part of that household. You didn't become like a son or a daughter, don't get me wrong but you came under the care and the protection of that individual. And so a lot of the slavery here in pre-Civil War America was very abusive and harsh, and that's not to say that that didn't exist in Paul's day. It did. But if they were brought into your family, this was somebody who was ultimately a worker for you, and you, you brought them in for the purpose of serving your family and doing a work that would benefit you and your family. So you wanted to treat them relatively well, because if they were your bond servant and you were their master and they were your slave, they were, they were doing something of value for you. And so we have a lot of examples in the ancient world and even around Paul's day where you would have slaves who were actually more well-educated than the masters that they served. You had slaves who served as teachers. You had slaves who managed entire households. And so when we think about Paul's instruction here, as we see it in Ephesians chapter 6 of, of the relationship that a slave is to have with their master, it wasn't a slavery that you and I think about. It was, it was a vastly different type of, of slavery. In fact, I'm going to give you one crazy example. Paul was eventually thrown in prison by a guy named Felix, who was the governor of Judea. And the crazy thing about Felix, a man who was the governor of Judea, had actually started out his adult life as a slave. So that just shows you how somebody could progress, even though, so you see what I'm saying? There was, the slavery was, was vastly different in Paul's day than it was in pre-Civil War America. And here's one more thing to think about. In Paul's day, <laughs> slaves and masters, at the time that Paul wrote, wrote this, were both coming to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so could you imagine this? 
Here you are, you're a slave, and you hear the message of the gospel, and you become saved. And you had certain freedoms as slave, the ability to travel and do things, and so you go to church. And your master also gets saved. Now, one of the things that we've been talking about as a church as you go through the book of Ephesians is that both a slave and a master, a male and a female, a Greek and a Jew, they're all equal in the kingdom of God, right? So you're sitting in a worship service next to your master, but in that context and in that room, you're equals. You go outside those doors, but guess what? They're still your master. You're still their, their slave. And so Paul recognizes this dynamic, and so he wants to speak into it. Are you tracking with me? And so, and so he knows that this relationship exists, and he understands that it's a, a worker and a boss relationship, and he wants to speak into it. And so that's what he's going to do here in our text. But, but two more things. I'm going to fly through these two. Some people have said at times, you know, when they come to a passage like this, and we see Paul giving instructions to slaves and Paul giving instructions to masters, they say, look at, look at God's word. It, it, it condones slavery. Christianity actually helped to, to support slavery. Like, like passages like this, we don't see the call to abolish slavery, but instead it seems like Paul and others are trying to support the slavery institution. And that's an absolute lie. It's, it's not true. Christianity never has been about slavery. In fact, there's two things I want to say about slavery and Christianity. Number one, God condemns the enslavement of people. Did you know that? God's word expressly condemns as a sin the enslavement of people, which means that every person who participated in the enslavement of individuals in pre-Civil War America and today engages in the enslavement of people, that is kidnapping someone and forcing them into slavery, they are committing a what? Sin. Thank you. This should be obvious, but I'm just going to state it. Why do we know this? When Paul wrote to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, a man by the name of Timothy, so the man who was pastoring the church that this letter was written to, he wrote this in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and what? Sinners, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That word there for enslavers is exactly what you think it is. Those who would take someone and force them into service of another. Paul says that is a sin. Those people are sinners. The Bible condemns the enslavement of individuals. Why does Paul say it? Well, God said it in Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be what? Put to death. How seriously does God take the enslavement of individuals? Very seriously. It's a sin. And so any country, any people, any group that has participated in it, they're engaging in something that in the eyes of God is sinful and wrong. Now, while I say that, I also want us to be clear. We do see God giving instructions in the Old Testament to the people of Israel how to deal with the slaves that are in their midst. In fact, what we do see is that God permitted a certain form of servitude in the Old Testament. Again, he does not condone it, but he comes and he says that in certain instances, for the sake of the Jewish people, for the sake of a brother or a sister who's not able to take care of themselves in your midst, they can 
sell themselves to you to work for you. And I'm not going to go through this whole verse today. I don't have the time. But you can go back and look at it. Leviticus 25, 35 through 43 is the text. And God gives very specific instructions of what to do when, you're, when your brother becomes poor and he can't provide for his family and how you're supposed to care for him and he becomes your servant. But his servant and his serving you, that only lasts for a certain season. After six years of service to you, he's released, he's set free. And while he's in your care, you are to provide for him, care for him, not to be harsh with him. But in fact, at the end of the six years, if that brother, if that individual says, you know what? I have enjoyed being a part of your home and serving you, and I would actually rather not be set free from you. God actually gave permission that you, as an Israelite, could stay as a servant in that household for the rest of your life. And they would do this thing where they would take you and they would puncture your earlobe, and so that would be identified that you were now no longer a free person in the sense that others were, but you were a servant of that household. So he condemns the enslavement of people, but he did allow for this kind of servitude to take place. So that's just the, the context of it. That's what I just want to lay these things out because so many times people accuse the church, accuse Christianity of things that simply the Bible does not say. Now, have people used the scriptures to promote slavery, to enslave people, and to abuse people? The answer to that is sadly, guess what? Yes. They've misinterpreted God's word many different ways. But we don't do that. We have the truth of God's word before us. We're clear on it. And with those things being clear, what is, what is it that Paul has to say to a group of people who are in a church together and they're in a church where some are in this relationship, they're in this institution. It's not a God-ordained institution. It's, a, it's a, an institution that's been created by the world. But what does God have to say to those who find themselves in this kind of work condition? Well, let's look at it again. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. It starts, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So God's spoken about the relationships that we experience. He's, he's talked to family relationships, husbands and wives. He's talked to children's relationships with their parents. Now he comes and he says to those who are slaves and to those who are their masters. He gives a very simple instruction. I'm going I'm to state it. You're going to see the main idea, and then we're going to break it down. The instruction that he gives here in verses 5 through 8 to slaves is very simply this. Do what your masters tell you in a way that displays your transformed life in Jesus Christ. I'm calling you, if you are a slave... If, if you're somebody who has been saved through Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that, that something has not necessarily changed in the relationship between you and your master. You are to do what it is that your master tells you, but you're to do it in a way that displays your transformed life in Jesus Christ. Where do we see this in the text? Well, that first thing of doing what your master tells you is, is found in the very simple instruction at the start of the verse. Bond servants... Obey your earthly masters. Do you see it? It's not a very difficult verse to, to translate or to understand. It's the exact same word for obey that Paul used when he said children are to do what? Obey your parents. 
That idea of obedience is very simply when someone who is an authority over you calls you to do something, you are to do that thing. Now, I hope it goes without saying that we know, as we said with children, that if somebody calls you to do something that goes against what God's word says you are to do, that you can't obey. That if somebody calls you to do something that God's word condemns, you, you, you must disobey. But you have to be prepared for the consequences of that, right? But, but when your master is calling you to do something, God's word comes and says, you are responsible to do it. Now, this seems kind of basic, and most of the slaves would already understand that, yeah, no, um, I know in general my relationship, I'm supposed to obey my master. But... But why is he saying it? Let's think about it for a minute. Do you know why he's saying it? Because I just told you before, he's writing to Christian slaves. And he's writing here to Christian masters. He's writing to people who he has just spent the first part of the book talking about the equality that we have, that we're all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and we all have the same spirit, and we're one in Christ. And so you could see how a slave in Paul's context would all of a sudden think, hey, if I'm equal with you in the family of God, when we get out there into the real world, you know, do I really have to? Do I really have to do what you ask? Doesn't, doesn't our spiritual relationship transcend, if you will, our, our earthly relationships and the structures that exist? And so Paul's like, let me get it really simple for you. Yes, you're brothers and sisters in the Lord. You worship together, you have one spirit. It doesn't change the fact that here on earth, there's still this institution that you're a part of. And just because Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior doesn't mean now that you get to rebel, that you get to ultimately disobey your master. In fact, he elevates things. He elevates things in such a way that Paul comes and says, it's not just that I want you to obey your earthly masters because of your relationship with Jesus. Because your life and my life has been transformed, the way in which you engage in doing what it is that your master or today your employer calls you to do something. Like the way in which you engage them and do what you're called to do, it should look different. It should be trans. You should be putting on display in your obedience the fact that you are a changed creation in Jesus Christ. And why do I say that? Because Paul gives four, look at these things, four very clear things. Look at how he works through this. He starts in verse five and he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with What? Fear and trembling. I mean, what's the image that comes to your mind, right? You know, somebody's shaking their knees, you know? It's like, oh, yes, I'll do whatever you say. That's actually not what we should think of when we hear these words. He's not saying that you should cower before your earthly masters. Yes, master, whatever you wish. This isn't a, this isn't a being afraid they're going to they're gonna hit you kind of a thing. This is all about fear and trembling equaling a respectful attitude. A respectful attitude. It's Paul reinforcing the fact that your relationship to your master, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, is one in which they are still your authority. They're still over you. You are still under them. They're, you are part of their family, and you need to recognize and you need to respect them in the way that you engage them. Like you need to know that when your master calls you to do something, the way in which you speak to them, the way in which you address them, is it communicating to them that you recognize the structure that you are existing in? And while Paul has stressed equality in Christ, it doesn't negate the fact that this relationship is the one that you have. 
And so let's just pause here for a moment. Like he's talking with slaves and masters, but he's also, listen, there is a correlation here to us today in the work that we do. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, we believe something. You've heard me say it. He said, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We are changed. We're different. Yet when it comes to our work, when it comes to engaging those that God has placed in authority over us, do we display in our conduct towards them, do they get the sense from us that we recognize that relationship? Do they get the sense and do they understand that that we recognize that what they are calling us to do, we have an obligation to follow through with? When he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, like, do those who you work for, do they get a sense that you are different because of your relationship with Jesus? And look what he goes on to say. He continues, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart. Here's where he's starting to get practical. It's not just about being respectful towards those in authority over you. He's saying, do this with a sincere heart. Now, when I looked at this, the the thing that I came up with, the best way for us to understand is is that we do our job, we do our work with generous effort, with generous effort. The, The Greek word here has this idea of being generous or liberal with what you have. Now, do you see how this would translate into a working relationship? With generous effort. The idea here is that when you are called to do something, are you giving your all in your doing it? Or are you holding something back? Would what you're doing for your master, would what you're doing for your boss, is that the same amount of effort that you would give to something you are doing for yourself? I'm pretty generous with David Wojnicki, just in case you're wondering, right? Don't you find that you're pretty generous in the effort that you put in for yourself? Are you that generous in your effort? Are you cutting corners? Are you doing the minimal amount? You know, you've heard the, the statement sometimes where it says you want to under-promise and, and over-deliver. Well, the idea here is don't just under-promise, just simply always over-deliver. Are you being generous in your efforts? And now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to think to ourselves, do we have any example of somebody who is really generous in their effort on our behalf? If you don't know the answer to that, well, let me share with you who it is. (laughs) Jesus Christ withheld nothing in the work that he did in order to redeem, to save us. In obedience to the Father, he went forth and he came down. And the beautiful thing when we were engaging with those baptisms this morning is we were watching these individuals and we're gonna see more. And what they're saying is like, I recognized I was a sinner and that my work was insufficient to be able to restore me to relationship with my heavenly father. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But one who could produce the work necessary was Jesus Christ. And he died for lost sinners to redeem and to save them. And he didn't give minimal effort. He gave maximum effort. In fact, it says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Praise the Lord. 
when we think about this. I'm going to circle back to that in just, just a minute. Generous effort. And then he goes on to say this. Bondservants, obey your, your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And what's he saying here? This is all about displaying, you know, let them see your new life in Jesus. Generous effort, respectful attitude. Right here he's talking about faithful service, not as people pleasers, but faithful service. It's really easy to picture what Paul has in mind here, what God's word is calling us to. I think what what God has in store for us here is thinking of a slave or a worker who will work hard only when the master is looking. It's the, it's the office worker, right? When the boss comes in, you know, they're playing solitaire or whatever, and then they click the screen, and then, you know, they got the spreadsheet up in front of them, right, you know? And then, oh, yeah, yeah, doing, doing good, and then they walk out. And so, so anyways, I was watching the movie the other day, you know, and, and it's like, are you working faithfully when the eye of your master is on you and when it's, when it's not? I mean, come on, if you've ever worked in any kind of job, you know that the tendency of the 99.9%, I will even say 100, of our heart is to always work harder when the boss is watching. Listen, as a 17-year-old on a construction site with guys who are in all different trades, we had electricians, we had plumbers, we had carpenters and drywallers, and everybody was on this site. I mean, you know, you saw the foreman, and, and the difference between certain guys when the foreman wasn't there and when he was there. Is their service being faithful? Are you just doing what you're doing when their eye is on you? And when it's off of you, you're something else? There's not this duplicity between us. He says, we are faithful in our service. Consistency is found in the Christian worker. And then finally, he says this, Bond servants, obey your earthly ma- masters, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. It's in this very last one where he talks about rendering our service, doing our work with goodwill, that he comes and he's addressing actually our disposition, our disposition. And the disposition that he says that we are to have is, I couldn't, I'm going to go with this. There's a lot of different ways I could say it. He's saying, do you have a positive disposition? I don't want to go fully cheerful because I don't want you to be thinking about like I'm out there digging the ditches like, this is so great. I love, thank you for giving me the job to do ditches. This is so fun. That's not what he's talking about here, okay? I mean, you could be, there are some people that are like that. And you actually, well, you both love and hate those workers, but we, we shouldn't hate anyone. Anyways. What he's talking about is like when you are given the task to do and as you go about it, is there a spirit of discontentment or is there a spirit of contentment that as those who are over you see you doing the work, do they see you doing it begrudgingly? Or look at it as the text says, rendering service with a goodwill as to who? The Lord. <laughs> The Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's your master's command to you. Now, what would it look like for me to, to love my neighbor as myself with a positive attitude versus loving my neighbor in a way that doesn't have a positive disposition? He's saying, would you 
communicate in your speech and in your behavior and your facial expressions, would you obey the Lord in the same way that you would obey your earthly master? Would you stand before Jesus when he calls you to love your neighbor and be like, fine, I'm going to love my neighbor. Here you go. I'm loving my neighbor. <laughs> that's, that's not the kind of disposition that I would want to communicate. And so he says, those who have been transformed by Jesus, like, listen, if you are in a relationship on this earth where you have someone who's in authority over you, who you are working for, you are to engage with them in such a way that you do what they call you to do, but with the respectful attitude, with generous effort, with faithful service, and a positive disposition. That's what your relationship should look like. Rather than your relationship with Jesus Christ destroying those institutions in such a way that you have to say, I don't have to listen to my master anymore because I have one master named Jesus. No, he comes and he says, because Jesus is your master, this is ultimately how you are to engage. In fact, did you notice in the text, God's word actually gives us two very clear reasons why we are able to work this way. Why this is how we as Christian workers are to engage in our work. The very first is this, you are serving your true master, Jesus Christ. When you are doing your work, don't you see it over and over again in the text? You're not serving an earthly boss. You're not serving an earthly master. The work that you're doing is ultimately to the Lord. Three different times he makes this explicitly clear. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. Verse 6, not as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the, from the heart. You have been saved. You've been redeemed. You've become slaves of Jesus Christ. Your heart is, is different. So the motivation for what you're doing is that you understand that whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do all to the glory of God. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to, to man. We're different. The reason why we work is to not make money, is to not build up our identity, is to not create status for ourselves. Everything that your work will get you, whether you're a slave or whether you're a free person working for a boss, it's all gonna mean nothing in light of eternity. None of the status that you have on earth carries with you into eternity. None of the money that you have here on earth carries with you into eternity. And the reason for that is, is because Jesus Christ is the one who has saved us. He is our master. And so he comes and he says, don't you know this? When you're working for that individual, you're not working for them. Your work is ultimately for the Lord, and the work that he cares about is a work that displays your transformed life in Jesus. This is so, so freeing. It becomes so freeing because you and I get to look at it and look at our work and say, the end result of this is not what my work is going to do for me. The end result of my work is, is it making much of the Savior who loved me and gave himself for me? And then the beautiful thing is that, guess what? Your work is not absent of reward. Did you see it in the text? You will be rewarded by God for the way you worked. You can't carry your riches with you. You can't carry your status with you. But no doubt, look at what the text says. You will be rewarded for the work that you do when you do it unto the Lord. For verse 8 says, 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is what? Free. Like we work this side of heaven often because um, of what our work is going to obtain for us. I was willing to put up with my first job and do the work that I was doing because I was gonna get a paycheck at the end of the day. He says, no, no, don't, don't look to the paycheck at the end of the day. Look to the fact that God will reward the faithful servant of Jesus Christ. That as you love the difficult boss, as you're respectful to that person, as you're faithful, as you're generous in your effort, there is a master who always sees everything that you're doing. And he will repay. He will reward. I don't know fully, church, what those rewards look like. But if God's word mentions that you're going to get them, and if God's word comes and says that those rewards supersede the rewards that you get here on earth, then can you imagine how spectacular they're going to be? And they're going to come to you from the Father who's going to say, as Paul would eventually write to Timothy, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a day coming where God is going to come to you in glory, and he is going to say, well done. Well done for the deeds you did in that work that you thought wasn't that significant that was tedious and tiresome for you, but the way in which you engaged those who were over you, generous in your effort, respectful, faithful, even cheerful, God will reward you for that. He will, because he's faithful. And you know, sometimes you get little glimpses of it here on earth. Sometimes you get just, just little God showing little kindnesses to us. You know, I was reminded of a story of a friend recently um, who, who had a commitment throughout his life to ultimately make Christ number one. And, and in his work, he was, it was Christ first, wife second, children third, I mean, which, you know, as a kid, I'm sorry, y'all, you guys are third at best sometimes, right? And then work and everything else was like number four. And in his work one time, he was out with a boss, and he was actually up for a promotion. And my friend was telling the story. He's like, I was with my boss, and, we were, and I was up for a promotion. This was years ago. And he says, my boss comes, and, and I know that I'm up for a promotion. It's me and another guy. And, and the, the boss and I are talking, and, and I'm communicating to him, you know, just how I view all of life and, and how the work that I do, I do it unto, unto the Lord, and that he's number one, and then, you know, goes down the list from there to my wife, to my kids, and then to my work. And the boss listened to him that day, and guess what happened? Guess what happened when it came time for the promotion? He didn't get it. He didn't get the promotion. And it was a number of years later, about four years later, that that boss eventually stood up in front of the, the, the gathering of the company, and, and he, was, he was talking about my friend who was not promoted. And, and he was talking about the work that he had done for the company and how grateful he was for the work that he had done for the company. And he, and he, he said... He said, you know what? He said, you know, it was a number of years ago I, I, I had the opportunity to promote him to this one job and I, and I didn't do it. 
because he had told me that in the work that he did, he said his priority was his faith, his relationship with his wife and his children, and then the job came number four. And he says, and I thought that's not the kind of guy that I want to do the work, right? Because I want somebody who's gonna, you know, work is what? Num number one. And he said, I made a huge mistake. This is in front of like thousands of people in the company. He said, because I, I saw that that person, because of that he prioritized his faith first, it made him a better worker. It made him a better worker. And, and actually, it was a small glimpse of, of then being recognized and rewarded for, for making Christ number one and doing your work as unto the, the Lord. Unto the Lord. Now, I should probably joke with my friend, well, you're not going to get your reward in heaven because you got it here on earth. But I'm not going to tell him that. Right? But, but I think that's a beautiful example here of how we have the opportunity and how even those who are unbelievers can recognize a person who is living out what God's word says here. Now, in the midst of all that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close with this and then just fly through this because God's word just doesn't have something to say to, to those who are workers, to those who are slaves. Do you see how he has one final instruction to those who are masters? There's a reason why I can fly through this because, well, you'll see. He says to them, masters, in verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. The instruction that he gives here to Christian masters is this, display your transformed life in Jesus Christ by blessing, not oppressing do you notice how he does something really interesting in the text here? He, he says that we are, as masters or those who are in, a, in authority positions, listen, you are to treat your slaves in the same way. You are to, to do the same to them, the same that they are to do to you. What is what they are to do to us? They, well, if slaves are to treat their masters with respect, with loyalty, faithfulness, integrity, with a positive disposition, if you're a master, listen, it's no different for you. Treat your workers, treat your slaves with respect, with loyalty, with faithfulness, with integrity. You are to do unto them as you would have them do unto, unto you. Just because you're in a position of authority, that doesn't mean, again, that you can oppress. It means that you are to, to bless. You are to bless. In fact, he goes so far as to say in the text, and by the way, would you stop threatening them? <laughs> and stop your threatening. That's where I get the idea that don't oppress them, but bless them. Don't lord your position over them. And he gives two reasons why. The first reason is very simply this. You too are slaves of Jesus Christ. Do you see it right there in the text? He comes and he speaks to them and he says, you both have the same master and he's in heaven. Don't forget that. Just as they're serving you, ultimately serving Jesus Christ, so too in your role as a master, don't forget you're a slave for Jesus. So church, family, if you are ever given a position and a responsibility over others, especially in the work environment, know that, that you are not the be-all, end-all, that you have one who is over you, that you too have a master that you are responsible to, and his name is Jesus Christ. And when we look at Jesus Christ, especially in John's gospel, in the upper room discourse, in, in John 13, 14, 15, he comes and he and he is the master, he washes the disciples' feet. And do you remember what he says? If I, the master, have served you in this way, so too you should what? Do the same. You too should serve. Jesus shows us, listen, if you're truly following me, then this is how you are to engage 
And the last thing that he says to them is this. Remember, your slaves, your workers, they are your equals in the kingdom of God. They're your equals in the kingdom of God. Do you see where he says it in the text? Knowing that he who is their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Just because you're a master here on earth, just because you're a boss here, just because you're the employer here, it doesn't change the fact that there's this equality that exists at the foot of the cross. You have a master. There's no partiality. You're both equal in the eyes of God. And so when you engage them here on earth, oh, you better recognize you better recognize and acknowledge that is true. For as Galatians 3.28 says, and we saw this before, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. You know, this week, you're gonna go out into the world. Today, maybe, it's gonna hit you, most likely for sure tomorrow. And you're gonna go into those relationships where God has you. Today, the relationships that he has for you that you are going to experience is maybe as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a sister, as a parent, as a child. Tomorrow, you're going to go out and maybe it's, you're going to be a worker for somebody else. Maybe you're going to be the employer. Maybe you're going to be the boss. And throughout this entire section of Ephesians, the, the whole thing that God has been communicating to us is if, if you have had your life transformed by Jesus, if you have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, if the Holy Spirit resides in you, then your life has been changed. And if your life has been changed, and I close with this, Jesus Christ transforms how we live in all our relationships. Jesus Christ should transform how we live in all of our relationships. And what we have seen throughout this text is just that truth. You are not who you once were. And so I close where we started this whole section in chapter five. Therefore, be imitators of God as you go out into the world as beloved children. Grace has come into your lives. Christ is your master and he is good and he is generous and he is faithful. And so may we trust in him. Let's pray together. Oh, heavenly father, as we bow before you, our service started with praise and proclamation of your name. In the baptisms that we witnessed, we saw brothers, or I should say we saw to this service, sisters in the Lord acknowledging before you that they were lost, but now they're found, that their lives are no longer their own, but they have died with Christ and they have been raised with Christ. And Lord, what is true of them, as we saw them go under the water and come back up, so true is all of us who are in Jesus. We're not who we once were, Lord. You have, you have saved us. You have redeemed us. And it impacts all of our relationships. And so, Lord, may we go forward this morning, walking in the power of Christ, knowing that everything that we do, Lord, we do unto you. And that everything that we do, we do because you have empowered us to do it. And so, Lord, help us to look to Christ. Never take our eyes off of him. And may our joy be found fully sustained in what Christ has done. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.